Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, remember the floppy disk? They kind of vanished in the late 90s and Sony stopped making them all together in 2011. But there is still demand out there, apparently. And one company in California that is still selling them if you need them. So who exactly wants them? Longtime Hockey Night in Canada executive producer John Shannon joins me to discuss his new book, Evolve or Die, Hard-Won Lessons from a Hockey Life. Find out how he stood up to Glenn Sather and convinced Pierre Trudeau to crawl along the floor of the Montreal Canadiens dressing room all the way back in 1979. The Bank of Canada is about to raise interest rates yet again. What impact is that having on Canadians coping with debt that is getting increasingly expensive to service? But first, as two Canadian women suspected of having been members of the Islamic State returned to this country after spending years in a Kurdish-run detention camp in northern Syria, should the federal government be doing more to repatriate Canadian men, women and kids still being held there or continue to stick the Kurds with people Canada doesn't want back? Well, at least two Canadian women and an unknown number of kids are heading back to Canada Canada, we believe tonight after being released from a detention camp in northern Syria, which holds women captured uh, and suspected to be ISIS members and their kids. One of them is believed to be BC woman Kimberly Polam, who married an ISIS fighter and had been held there in northern Syria for more than three years now. Now, until now, the federal government had refused to repatriate any of the more than a dozen Canadians captured by U.S.-backed Kurdish fighters in Syria during that fight against ISIS. But earlier this year, the human rights group Human Rights Watch accused Canada of actually preventing a Canadian woman and a young Canadian child detained in northeast Syria from coming home for life-saving medical care, despite a Canadian policy allowing them to do so. It was unclear what role the Canadian government played in the release of the people we're talking about tonight. Now, Pullman did speak to Global News in northern Syria in 2019. Here's what she had to say. Right now, the concern would be bigger of getting the women and the children out of here Um, We have a justice system. Put them in front of that system and let that system deal with them in a way that is actually much safer. Um, I don't trust what's going around here. I mean, thankfully, we have U.S. presence here and we have drones everywhere. And I'm pretty sure that out of all the areas of Syria, this might be one of the safer ones to be in. Um, But when ISIS says that they will come and do something, I would suggest that we might want to listen to that. I take it seriously and I think that the rest of the world should also. These people don't play. And they have nothing without all the women. <laughs> and they know that too. That is BC woman Kimberly Pullum, who has, had been held in northeast Syria for several years. Now we believe she's on her way home tonight. We don't know exactly why. Uh, but it does shine a light on the fact that thousands of people from all over the world, including kids and Canadians, are still left in this limbo in Syria years after the fighting all but stopped under the protection, or at least under the guard, Kurdish forces who would very much like to send them home. Well, joining me now with more on this is Stephanie Carvin, an Associate Professor of International Relations at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Uh, welcome back, Stephanie. Thanks so much. Hey, thanks for having me back. So what do we know about what's happened? Because it all sort of came out of the blue. I know Human Rights Watch put out uh, stuff about uh, this particular person back in earlier in 2022, but this all seems to have come together pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, the government, to be fair, has been looking and considering this for a long time. By a long time, I mean, like, since 2015, 2016, when it became known that there were multiple Canadians that had gone over. um, And as quite a a number of them ended up in in 
prison. I believe, um, my, like you know, my my colleague Amar Amarnath Amar Singham at Queen's University has picked a number somewhere between thirty five and forty, um, the, of which I believe everyone but three is either uh, a woman or a child, right? I think there's th- three believed to have actually been um, foreign fighters in the sense that they actually engaged in fighting. So, yeah, I mean, the government has looked at this for a long time. Um, they, I think politically it was very difficult to do because you have a bunch of people who, A, belong to you know, one of the most notorious violent extremist organizations in existence, um, and also the sense that you know, people made a choice to go over there and fight against uh, Canada's allies. Um, and as a result of that, um, you know, I don't think there was a lot of public will to really bring them back. So I think the government um, has hesitated. Uh, it, it's acted, frankly, I think, in a bit of a cowardly manner. Um, we, we can get into that. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's one of the reasons why uh, the, the government hasn't uh, brought these individuals back is just simply because I think – to a large extent, it, it's been politically unpalatable, but also, I mean, to be fair, there's some some challenges with regards to, well, well, what do you do with them when when they're actually back? Yeah, and there, therein lies the question. I think we understand in this case that uh, that illness, uh, severe illness, may be the cause here. Um, yes. And there have been some conflicting reports in the past about just exactly how open Canada is to bringing people back, even if they make it to an embassy, say, in Erbil in Iraq on the other side of the border. Uh, but back to the two women, if, if there is an illness question here, will they face charges if they come back? Do we know? So one of the biggest challenges, and I think, you know, I said that it's a question of political will. But one of the other issues here, I think, um, to be fair, is, you know, these individuals have, um, I said, you know, gone over and, and supported a violent extremist group. The problem is, how do you prove that in court with court ready evidence, right? It's I mean, a lot of people will say, well, they joined a terrorist group. Well, actually, there's no law against joining a terrorist group, believe it or not, right? There's, you, can, you, you have to actually do something to further the ends of the terrorist group. Um, um, you know, we, we call that like facilitation. You have to have mm-hmm. actually facilitated that group in some way. So the question is, can you prove that these individuals actually facilitated some kind of violent extremist activity. And that becomes really hard. You could say, well, didn't you interview them? But, you, but then, you know, in court, these individuals would just say, well, I was in an ISIS prison. I would do, say anything to get out, right? So we just don't have a lot of good court-ready intelligence. You know, we have a good idea of what they probably did, but proving it in court is like a whole other matter. So it becomes really, really hard to, to just uh, prove. It wasn't until fairly recently we even had a criminal offense that actually um, made it illegal to go over and fight in, in such a conflict. So, it, it, you know, it, it really is, is, has been a challenge. And I think this is one of the reasons why the government has also hesitated, because they know that the possibility of bringing forth criminal charges is probably pretty low, which means that these individuals, you know, they might be subjected to what's called a peace bond. A peace bond is like a fancy restraining order in some ways. It basically just says that, you know, it restricts what a person can and can't do because uh, the police have um, a, a reasonable ground to, uh, so, you know, I, I believe it's suspects. I believe it's suspects. I don't think it's believed, but a reasonable, on reasonable grounds believes or suspects that um, an individual is about to uh, or is, is going to engage in some kind of illegal behavior. And so you can put kind of this restraining order, which we call a peace bond, 
on them. So there's that possibility. Um, but the actual thought of bringing criminal charges against these individuals is, is uh, pretty, pretty low, even if they do eventually confess. Which then raises the specter of bringing people back and then and then watching them go free, which I'm sure the government doesn't want uh, to be exactly. seen to be doing, uh, regardless of what the uh, what the moral implications of that are. Because truth be told, they're now in these Kurdish camps. Or at least that's where the Kurds are guarding them. They don't want them there. They they want it. They want them to be sent back to their home countries to face whatever justice they must face. Um, exactly. And there's a lot of kids there too. So there's a lot of pressure. It's 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 a situation. You're right. It takes some courage here, and I'm wondering what that courage might look like going forward. Yeah, I mean, but just to your point, I mean, these camps are not. It's not like summertime fun camp. But they're not just sitting around. These camps are terrible places. Like they're genuinely terrible places. And you have people who, um, you know, may have gone over, made some mistakes, got stuck there and are trying to find their way back, but may have kids, and it's really complicated, versus people who are, like, but also in those camps are hardcore ISIS supporters or Daesh supporters um, who do actually want to recruit, train people, um, cause riots, cause harm. I mean, these are terrible places, extraordinarily dangerous for children. And, yeah, if someone has a serious illness, then this is no place to get medical treatment. These places are really really terrible. And some people might say, well, you know what? You went over there. You deserve it. It's too bad. Um, okay. Maybe that's true for the adults, but like the kids are innocent. Like they haven't done anything. Right. And then you might say, well, why don't you just bring back the kids? So I'm like, well, then you're making them orphans. You're taking them away from their parents. Like it's not, a, there's no fun, happy, easy solution here. It's like, everything's awful, but like, I think we have to prioritize the lives of the children that are in these terrible camps bring them back, and then find ways to actually deal with the people who made the choice to go over there. And, you know, I mean, other, but other countries have been dealing with this for a long time, right? Like um, in the Netherlands, uh, for example, if when they had returnees, they brought them to an institution, they evaluated them for, for risks. Um, they treated anyone over the age, I believe, of 14 as uh, a foreign fighter, like someone who'd been, who'd been trained because that was the age at which... Um, uh, Daesh had, or the Islamic State had been effectively uh, training people at that time. So, but they, but they were also worked out like programs to put these people into, right? Counseling programs, um, programs geared to trying to get these people back into society. Do they need, you know, a lot of the women who've been in these camps have been raped, you know, do, or have suffered some kind of sexual violence. Do they need some kind of counseling or medical treatment for that? Uh, the kids who've been raised in this environment, like. You know, you can't yeah. just suddenly plunk them into normal schools. So, like, there, other countries have found ways to get around this. And, frankly, they've dealt with far more of their own citizens than, than Canada has w- would have to face. So, so, Stephanie, what do we do from here, then? Because we can't just leave them there forever, or can we? Well, I don't think we can. I mean, this is the thing. So, uh, a couple of points here. First of all, again, like, this idea that, you know, they left, we should just leave them there, like, it's not a very good thing to just dump our problems on the Kurds, right? I mean, the Kurds are still very much involved. You know, uh, you mentioned earlier the fighting's over. It's not. <laughs> it's yeah, still uh, regular, regular kind of, not battles, I would say, but there's definitely still fighting happening in the area, right? And the Kurds are nominally, at least, our allies. We trained them for a long time, and now we've dumped a whole bunch of foreign fighters on them. And the Kurds, quite frankly, would like us to take them home. So I think that's part of it. Um, 
you know, just kind of fulfilling our commitments to our allies. Um, but also, again, like, I mean, this idea that they're just going to stay and rot there forever is, is wrong. Like, it's just not going to happen. I mean, there's a couple of reasons for this. One is um, often these camps don't have great security, so people escape. Right now, so far, these people haven't been able to escape. It doesn't mean they won't be able to in the future. If there's one thing ISIS specializes in, it's actually breaking people out of prison. Right? This was the start of their big comeback in 2014. They, they broke um, tens of thousands of their fighters out of prisons in Iraq. So, you know, if ISIS comes back uh, for a number of reasons, we, we can talk about that. But let's just stick to the topic here. Um, it's possible, like if there's enough prison attacks that, you know, these camps could eventually fall and these fighters are going to go elsewhere. And elsewhere could be, I don't know, uh, going back to, to join the Islamic State, but it could also be, you know, going to Europe, um, going around the world. And, um, you know, I mean, presumably they don't have travel documents, but they could end up in a lot of places. And so that, that poses a risk. Um, because, you know, if Canadians had the opportunity to repatriate someone who then goes on to do some kind of violent extremist act elsewhere, I, I think that's that's not a great thing for Canada, right? So I think the best thing, I mean, it's not, you know, I understand, I can hear like everyone groaning and, and the gnashing of teeth and pulling of hair through the radio. Um, but like, you know, the real pragmatic thing to do here is to bring these people back, uh, charge where we can. Right. Uh, charge with terrorist offenses if we can, if it's at all possible. And if not, to make sure that these individuals are either under peace bonds or in um, treatment programs that we've set up out in B.C., for example, you have some great uh, programs that are aimed at violent extremists like Shift B.C. Right. They, we, we now have the infrastructure to take people who are perhaps going down the wrong path or, or who have gone down the wrong path and help bring them back from it, right? We have, that's something we have in 2022 that we didn't have in 2016, 2017, is this, this established network. So I think that would also go some way to ensuring that, that Canada would be safe. Yeah. Um, and, you know, again, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of the people who are now in these camps are women and kids, and uh, we can't just leave them there forever. Stephanie Carvin, thank you so much for shedding some light on this tonight, as always. Hey, it's always great to be on the show. We're going back in time, and about the same time that I used to have floppy disks for a computer, my first laptop, or not laptop, what am I talking about? My first desktop, um, that kind of music was popular. Uh, well, it turns out, of course, think back to the 90s and the 80s and the floppy disk. Now, I thought immediately back to the 80s and those big five and a half inch ones that were actually floppy. I don't think anybody uses those anymore. Maybe maybe someone out there still has a few lying around, but those really aren't what we're going to be talking about just here. Let's move up just a little bit to their much sleeker, smaller, hard plastic cased um, cousin, the three and a half inch disc. Um, if you think back to the 80s and 90s, those were still pretty common, of course, right? But then like all things these days, it doesn't take long before things start to fade away a little bit, replaced, I guess, by CD technology. In fact, Sony stopped making those 3.5-inch discs, um, 3.5-inch discs altogether, I think, in 2011. But say you actually still needed one. Uh, well, there is one last bulk supplier out there who sells them, and business, it turns out, is pretty good. Meet Tom Persky of FloppyDisc.com, and this is a quick thing, great big story did about him just a while back to give you a taste of what's coming. 
When I look at a floppy disk today, I look at something that's valuable and that I use. And yet, when most people look at it, they'll look at it almost as a joke. Floppydisk.com. I'm the last man standing in the floppy disk business because I basically forgot to get out of the business. In this office, we're in a time warp. The manufacturing of the diskettes is over. And so all of the diskettes that will be made have been made. I'm desperately trying to acquire as many diskettes as I possibly can. All kinds of disks come flying into our doors. From time to time, commercial recycler will call me up and say, hey, I have somewhere between 35 and 50,000 disks. We sort them. We run them through a process to erase the information. Once the diskettes are reformatted and relabeled, we're able to resell them. We do sell to the U.S. government. There are a number of applications that the government has that call for the use of a floppy disk. The old saw is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But most of our business is for commercial and industrial use, whether they be embroidery machines, ATMs, avionics for airplanes. Those machines are still around, and they're going to last for quite a few more years. The floppy disk business will not be around forever. Are you sad about that? No, I won't be around forever either. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a taste of uh, what you're about to hear. What we're about to talk about, Tom Persky joins me now from Lake Forest in California, which is right near Irvine, I do believe. Tom, thanks for staying up late tonight. Much appreciated. Happy to do it. I'm on the West Coast like you are, so it's not too late for me. Not too bad. So how did you get involved in, in, in this back when? Well, it's kind of a strange story. I started out as a tax lawyer and uh, left the tax business to go to work for a small in Southern California to do tax and accounting software work. And we discovered a, a need to distribute our tax software. And this was back in the 1990s. And so we distributed the software on floppy disks. And uh, when we had a small software business, uh, it was not a, much of a burden to be able to distribute it. But when we sold 150,000 copies of a piece of software to one company, we needed to find a way to do mass duplication. So we meant, went from being purely in the software business to being in the floppy disk duplication business. And the piece that you just ran suggested that I'm still in the business because I forgot to get out of the business. Well, I guess that's, that's really right. Um, I, I never thought in a million years I would ever sell a blank floppy disk because in 1990, you could get a blank floppy disk at your local Office Max or Office Depot or Staples store. You could get it at CompUSA or Best Buy. And there's no way in the world I would be able to compete with those kinds of retailers. But all those people slowly got out of the business, and I continued to have a large inventory of blank floppies for our duplication business. And before I knew it, I ended up, sending, I think, probably being the largest seller of blank floppy disks left in the world. It is it is remarkable. I mean, it's, it was sort of was a war of attrition. If you will. Well, maybe not. It was sort of everyone kind of bailed. It was sort of the blockbuster syndrome, right? The big retailers all disappeared, but there was always still a need out there. Amazing, though, from tax law. I mean, obviously, in that piece that I played, uh, that's actually a video if you want to go watch it on YouTube. And you can see your office, and it does not look like a tax lawyer's office, Tom. 
<laughs> no, it, it, and it I mean that as a compliment. <laughs> It, it looks a little bit like, well, if we could go back in time to those of you who remember Raiders of the Lost Ark that in the last scene when he's walking through a warehouse and there's stuff simply all over the place, that's sort of what it's like. So I was reading that, um, and you mentioned it in the piece too, that essentially these were stopped, they stopped making these uh, more than a decade ago now. Um, so where do you get supply are you essentially the the last person you're like the the repository for every last one of these diskettes that are still out there that people want to want to get rid of well about five ten five or ten years ago i made uh, a large buy of um, half a million or a million discs and i thought that would be enough to sort of blast me but it turns out that um uh that people find floppy disks all over the place and send them to us, and some people sell them to us. Earlier, you know, in the piece, or actually it was before the piece that you played, you talked about the five and a quarter inch flexible floppy disks, and they were replaced by that hard shell uh, uh, disk that we you call a floppy disk, and I call a floppy disk, but not everybody in the world calls it a floppy disk. Right. Now, how how do I know that? I know that because in South Africa they call it a stiffy disc. Stiffy disc. They wanted right, to, yes, they they wanted to make a distinction between the flexible floppy disc, which was five and a quarter inches, and the and the hard case disc, which is now. Why do I know that they're called stiffy discs? Is it three months ago somebody from South Africa called me up and said, "Do you want to buy fifty thousand stiffy discs for me?" And sure enough, they put them on a boat and they showed up in my warehouse. And now I have another 50,000 discs that have showed up, you know, on pallets <laughs> up, up in <laughs> my you, crazy you, warehouse. At some point in that conversation, I have to imagine you asked him exactly what he was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been around long enough to know what, <laughs> what he was getting at. but it, it All the different out, terms. Yeah. But it's just kind of amazing that somebody from South Africa would find me and say, hey, I've got these discs. Can I can I get them off my hands? Because right, I don't want to. I don't want to take them to the dump. And they must. They. It sounds like you have some possible use for them. Do you want to buy them? And that's what we did. That's what you do. Um, and you managed to get a great domain name too, by the way. I mean, floppydisc.com pretty much says it all. So I think that must be a bit of the secret to your bit of the recipe to success too. It must be well, in some it, senses. It, it's a little bit of an embarrassing secret because. <laughs> Uh, back in the 80s and 90s, I was a little bit of an internet guy, and uh, I thought that the internet was something that really didn't shouldn't have been monetized. It was supposed to be free for everybody. And I got an email from somebody saying that they wanted to sell me the domain name floppydisk.com. Now, we used to call those people cyber squatters. I don't know if they still right. do that. Right. But but I thought, I am not going to do business with a cyber squatter. And I turned to my wife and I said, can you believe some cyber squatters wants to sell me floppydisk.com? It's an outrage. And she says, how fast can I pay the check? <laughs> <laughs> so she helped me get my head out of where it shouldn't have been. <laughs> and, we, and we got the domain name. And the rest is history. 
Um, I have many other questions. I mean, clearly when you get these, you get lots that, that have data on them already. Do you have to, you must get some, some unused ones, but I guess you have to erase all of them and repurpose them, right? Well, I mean, we, we get a, different kinds of discs. There are people who sell us blank. The only thing that we buy are, are, are new discs in sealed packs. But people also send us discs for recycling. And when they send us discs for recycling, we erase the discs, we reformat the discs, we relabel the discs, and we try to resell the discs. Now, some of those discs fall out and are, uh, cannot be reused. And we try to repurpose those for other, for other purposes. And in fact, there's quite a thriving little community of people who make things out of floppy disks. And uh, we, have a, uh, we have a large number of what we call promotional disks, non-working floppy disks, that we sell to people that they use for all kinds of things. I mean... Here's a crazy example. Are you ready for this? Sure. You can go to a tech, you can go to a tech conference now, right? And now that COVID is over, we can actually go back to conferences. Yay, okay? So you go to your tech conference and you say, okay, I want my conference badge. And what they give you is a badge, which is a lanyard, you know, that would go around your neck, that slips through a floppy disk, and your badge is actually the label on the floppy disk. Wow. Now, that's a very cool idea. So you'd be behind that. Those would be your floppy disks that they would be using. Lots of times. Lots of times. And, and, and when two nerds get married, sometimes they'll take a five and a quarter inch disk or an eight inch disk, which is even older right. than that, and use them as wedding favors. Remarkable. Nostalgia. You know, you can never beat nostalgia. But Tom, who buys them these days? In 2022, who needs a floppy disk or a diskette, we should say, or a stiffy disk? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, our, our customers really fall into uh, probably three categories. W one is probably the most obvious, which might be the collectors, uh, the people who uh, have retro computing machines. They want to play computer games back from the 70s or 80s, and uh, they, uh, they continue to buy floppy disks, in including those flexible five and a quarter inch floppy disks. I think I'm going to run out of those before I run out of anything else. I'm really down to the, to, to the last uh, couple of uh, cases of those uh, flexible floppy disks. Wow. But the, um, the biggest part of our business right now is what I would call business and industrial users. And it might be surprising to think that their businesses and industrial users are still using floppy disks. But the truth of the matter is that if you had a machine uh, that was built uh, 20 or 30 years ago, and that machine is functioning for you, and the way that uh, you would get information in and out of that machine 20 or 30 years ago was with a floppy disk, and the floppy disk still works today, there may not be a reason to change. Now, I'll give you some examples. One might be the embroidery business. Another might be the tool and die business. Uh, there are lots of there are lots of pieces of medical equipment uh, that can, that use floppy disks. Just just as an example, in the embroidery business, let's say that you have a, a piece of embroidery equipment that was built to last thirty or forty years, and uh, you still need to tell it. Uh, what to sew on that cap 
you know, or what to, or or what company name that you want to print on that T-shirt. So, to get that little tiny bit of information in and out of uh, in and out of that machine, you might you use a floppy disk. And uh, not only do you see, you know, these more mundane uses like tool and die and embroidery and medical equipment, you'll even see the use of these in some air, aircraft. Because I would guess that probably a third to a half of the airplanes that are flying today were built more than 20 years ago. Maybe not for Canadians, maybe not for Americans, but it's a big world out there. And there are lots of old aircraft that are still flying around. It's remarkable to think of all the things that were built to last and were obviously cutting you know they were they were cutting edge technology at the time using floppy disks or diskettes, uh, but who knew who knew that things would switch and change and move around so fast that uh, you're right. Why would you get rid of a perfectly good embroidery machine just because you can't? Much easier to go find the floppy disk, right? Yeah, and and you know the, the reality is is that at least in my experience, the floppy disk is a very reliable, very well understood, very dependable really not hackable way to get that information in and out of a machine. And so frequently uh, it's really, it's the best solution. Now, you know, a lot of people say, well, isn't a USB drive just as good? Well, probably is just as good in most cases, but if I had to bet my life on getting information off of a floppy disk that was 20 years old, or off of a USB drive that was 20 years old, I would definitely go with a floppy disk. We, we run a, a, what we call our floppy disk transfer service, where people um, send us floppy disks that they have information on that they want to get off. So let's say that you had photos of your children or grandchildren that uh, you stored on a floppy disk and you want to get those off. Or you had the first draft of your novel or, or dissertation or an address book or your mother's will uh, that was on a floppy disk. And so people send us that data and we take it off the floppy disks, put it on a USB drive or we'll email them the, the information so that they can get it. And I will tell you, you know, my industrial customers are very happy that I can provide them with floppy disks for their industrial use. But nobody is happier than a grandmother who sees photographs that she took 20 or 30 years ago. And we consistently yeah. are able to get uh, files off of, uh, off of floppy disks that were done in the 70s. And so if you think about it, that's like, you know, what, almost 45, 50 years ago. It is. Uh, I, would not, yeah. I would not trust the USB drive for that. Or a CD, for that matter. I don't. I don't. Or think. a CD, because they, yeah, people, cause they people tend to lose. CDs yeah. are forever. No, I could say they're not. I own. I own. I own. I own many that aren't forever. Yeah. 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 I, uh, they, they they do degrade. There's no doubt about it. Well, Tom Persky, it's been fascinating to find out so much about floppy disks. I'm glad you're still doing what you're doing, and that there are so many people out there. Is it about, you sell about 500 a day? You were saying still. Oh, I think we're at least 500 a day, probably more. But wow. um, uh, we're going to continue doing it until we run out. 
whatever that may be. And again, a nod to your wife. You can find Tom at floppydisks.com. <laughs> there you go. Hey, thanks a lot for the call. Speaking of the late 70s, uh, for many of us, we have memories that are tied to hockey broadcasts. It might have been Paul Henderson's goal in 1972. Maybe it was Sidney Crosby in 2010, Mary Philip Poulet in Sochi in 2014. The list goes on and on and on. But when it comes to hockey broadcasts that changed my young life, I go back to 1979 and this one. 55 seconds left in the penalty, a minute and 27 seconds left in regulation time. Boston 4, Montreal 3. Lafleur coming out rather gingerly on the right side. He gives it into Lemaire, back to Lafleur. What could be more appropriate if anybody's going to score for the Canadians? And their gunner, D. Lafleur, he takes that drop pass after he had initiated the play. He beat Gilbert with a hard flat shot from the right side, low and on the far side. D. Lafleur sends his place into a frenzy again. You might remember that goal. That was the too many men on the ice penalty that Don Cherry got called on. It tied up the game between the Canadians and the Bruins. The Canadians went on to win in overtime. They went on to win another Stanley Cup in 1979, uh, beating the Rangers after that. But for me, I'd never seen the Canadians lose really at that age. And I was afraid they were going to lose to the Bruins until the flower came along and scored that goal with not much time left in that game. Now, imagine getting a peek behind the scenes to understand exactly how it works when it comes to broadcasting hockey on TV. The outtakes, the stories, the laughs, the challenges, the hurdles, the tears, say. Well, that's exactly what a new book from John Shannon called Evolve or Die, Hard-Won Lessons from a Hockey Life, does. Covering tales from his decades in broadcasting and particularly in hockey as the longtime executive producer of Hockey Night in Canada. And John Shannon joins me now. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate the time. So, evolve or die. It's it's a it's a it's an interesting title. I've seen you use the term before, but what does it mean to you? And, and what made you decide that you wanted to put this all down on paper? You know, I I, I love telling stories. I, I think some of them have some poignancy. Some of them have a few laughs. And somebody kept insisting that I write a book. So, the evolve or die is something that I I kind of adapted as my my own personal statement or, 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 or mission statement about 15 years ago. In spite of what I thought was, I was doing the right thing for lots of people, I, I kept having to change what I did and where I did it. And if I didn't change, then I wouldn't be able to have an occupation or have a profession. And so I, I, I needed to change with the times. And, and I quickly came up with that slogan and have used it over the last decade and a half to tell people, you know what? Yeah, I've had lots of jobs and I've met lots of people uh, and I hope to continue to because I keep evolving. And so if, if I didn't evolve, then I, I probably would be dead by now. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, it, it does say so much, though, about just many of the things you've done, because even for something like hockey broadcasting, you really do have to evolve, right? I mean, people, have, uh, fans expect to see evolution of a, of a broadcast, even if they've come to, to like it. Um, tell me about some of the stories that you decided to put down. You must have had a hard time choosing amongst all the many stories over the many years. Uh, there were some that I elected not to put in, that's for sure. I feel I started my career as a television person, you know, in broadcasting. I love, I love the medium. 
of radio and television, and, and now there are other platforms that are constituted in, in, the, in the broadcast industry. But I think I've evolved into a hockey person, too. I'm not a coach. I'm not a general manager. But many of the people that I deal with on a, on a daily basis over the last five decades uh, have become personal friends. Uh, I think I've been involved in their lives. They've been involved in mine. And I think now more uh, or as much of, as a hockey person with a hockey background than I do with a broadcasting background. What I wanted to do was, was to try to tell some stories about, you know, fun people in the game, people that have influenced my life, like the great Bob Cole, the great broadcaster John Davidson, who's now the president of the Columbus Blue Jackets, and, how, and their evolution within the sport as well. So th that's really how I decided to, to, to work through some of the stories. I, I was lucky enough to meet and work alongside the hero of Lake Placid for the U.S. Olympic team, Herb Brooks and the, the rocky relationship we had for the longest period of time that ended up becoming a great friendship. And I guess you could put Glenn Sather on that list as well, Ben. I, I, maybe I learned more from Glenn than I realized, uh, but certainly Glenn pushed me and in many ways only got respect from Glenn when I pushed back. Yeah, it's, it's a remarkable story because the, the in many industries, you don't have as close contact with the people that you're covering or the people that you're responsible for. But in hockey, it feels like there was, especially given just how many, how long you're in that you've been at, you've been at it. Uh, you've had a chance to really get to know people. I mean, I remember when John Davidson first started his career as, as a commentator and just how much better he got. I, I, you said, you mentioned something really interesting in the book that people I don't think realize and many people don't realize because it's, it's the same for a lot of broadcasting is just how much preparation goes into it and how the finished product is a result of a lot of work, not just sort of throwing it on air and hoping for the best. Well, that's the first lesson you tell a former player when they want to say, Oh, I want to be a broadcaster. Well, are you prepared to work at it? Because you can get engrossed in the game. And when you do, you become a better broadcaster for it. This is a 24-7, 365-day life when it comes to being a broadcaster, particularly in the game of hockey that so many Canadians have a passion for because you never know what you're going to need to talk about. You never know who you're going to need to talk to. So you have to consistently and continually build relationships and talk to people and, and remember things uh, in order to be able to tell a story here or tell a story on the air. It becomes a challenge, but at the same time, it really works if you have a passion for, and I was fortunate, I had a passion both for broadcasting and for hockey. Yeah, that, that, that would be, uh, so you've shared a lot of good stories here. Um, I know you've shared a few of them already, but some of them jump out. There is obviously the Glenn Sather story. Uh, it involved certain close-ups of him when he was behind the bench, and you insisted on showing him, <laughs> despite some protestations from him via his mum, I believe. So it was a, a playoff series. I believe it was 1983 or 84. In 1983, Ben, I'm 25 years old. I've, I've been producing for three years by this point. I'm just a kid. And I remember Glenn playing for the Rangers and the Bruins and, and now coaching the Oilers. And I had put these guys on pedestals in so many different ways as a fan. And now I was putting them on pedestals as a television producer. Uh, and I was walking through the arena in Edmonton one morning and about 100 feet away, somebody's yelling at me. 
and I turn around, and it's, it is Glenn Sather, and, and he, he proceeds to give me heck because we're showing him on the air too many times when you can read his lips and he's swearing. And not only that, but is now his mother, who lives in High River, Alberta, is, is giving him heck for swearing too much on television. So he tells me, stop shooting me on television. And I said, Glenn, I can't stop shooting you on television. That's stupid. I mean, if I can see you in the seats at the Coliseum, why can't I see you on television? Uh, and if you choose to swear, that's your problem, not mine. You know that if the Oilers get a penalty or they get a goal against, uh, we're going to shoot you because you're the coach and we're going to you know, force the story. How is Glenn Sather going to make change in order to get his team back uh, on the winning track or to kill the penalty? So that's just part of the process of telling a story on television. And you're, you, Glenn, are going to be... So we, we get into a rather heated argument about this, and now he's not 100 feet away, he's 50 feet away, and now he's 10 feet away, and finally I turn to him and then and use expletives against him, at which point he stops, he smiles, and he walks away, because he, he had pushed me to my limit, and now I was pushing back, and I think in so many ways, Glenn Sather finally realized, hey, this guy's okay, and we've been friends Ever since that day, he and his wife Annie were great to me when we when I worked in New York for the National Hockey League. Talked to him last week. He got my son tickets to a Ranger game. I, I guess I had to prove myself to Glenn Sather before he realized that hey, this guy knows what he's talking about. Yeah, John, I'm thinking that could have gone either way, but yes, I'm glad it went this way. Yeah. Could, uh, John, th- another interesting story that you share in the book as well is uh, the 79 Stanley Cup Finals. I gather uh, the Prime Minister at the time, Pierre Trudeau, a Habs fan, uh, wanted to be in the dressing room, but it was also during an election, so there was no way you could put him on camera. Ben, as you know, in our country, the, there, are, there are fairness doctrines and fairness laws that if you shoot one candidate for a political job, you have to shoot the other leader of the other party. So was, that year, 1979, was a rather vitriolic political campaign between Pierre Trudeau and Joe Clark's Conservative Party. And it just so happened that Game 5 of that Stanley Cup final occurred the night before the election. And on that night, Pierre Trudeau shows up at the old Montreal Forum we can't even show him on television because if we show him, then, you know, the conservatives are going to say that's not fair. Uh, you have to give us time to show Joe Clark. And heaven knows what province or what city Joe Clark was in at the time. So one of my jobs after the game is over, Canadians have won the Stanley Cup. The celebration is going on in Canadians' dressing room. And we're in the old weight room at the back of the dressing room doing interviews. Dick Irvin is our, our host of the interviews, and he's talking to players celebrating, they're half-dressed, they're spreading champagne all over the room, uh, and I turn and look, and out of my corner of my eye, I see a, a PR flak from the PMO, I see uh, a CSIS agent, and there he is, in, in all his splendor, the Right Honorable Pierre Elliott Trudeau. The only way to get by to the dressing room is to walk through our shot. You know, I've been told in no uncertain terms by my boss, Ralph Melamy, that Mr. Trudeau cannot be on television. So I tell the PR flack, he can't be on television. I tell the CSIS agent, he can't be on television. And finally, I say, Mr. Prime Minister, I'm sorry, but you know the rules of, of our country. You cannot be seen without showing Joe Clark. So the only way you're going to get to the dressing room right now, sir, is if you crawl along the floor. And there's a pause, 
And next thing you know, there he is with the PR flak, with the CSIS agent, crawling along the floor below the knees of Dick Irvin, and I believe he was talking to Bob Ganey at the time, to get into the dressing room to celebrate with, with the Montreal Canadiens hockey team. <laughs> they had just beaten John Davidson and the, Ra- and the Rangers, ironically, if I remember back far enough to 1979. Um, You're very good, uh, think, Ben. You're very I good. Was, you know your was, hockey history. I was watching that game in Montreal. I was That's where I grew up. Um, Speaking of growing up in Montreal, you know, watching Hockey Canada, Hockey Night in Canada evolve over the years, obviously I can't not ask you about Don Cherry because he was such an integral part of the show for so long and then the way it all stopped and ended. Um, was that always difficult for you to try and figure out how to make him work? With, he was clearly popular but controversial. Was that tough? Was that a tough part of your gig? Difficult? I don't think it was difficult. I, I think you had to meet it square on uh, as a producer, as a, a planner, an organizer was to be able to diffuse scenarios and situations. The other challenge with Don is to try to make it look like his idea. So if there was something controversial that was going to be talked about, uh, it probably took a couple of cups of black Tim Hortons coffee. Uh, We don't live very far apart. We live about 10 minutes by car apart. And to drive over and sit on a Thursday or a Friday morning and talk this out, what's going to happen? What are you going to say? And we'd probably have the same conversation Saturday afternoon uh, when Don's in the makeup chair getting made up for the show. I, I, I loved being with Don. I, I understood, I think I understood Don, and I, I think when you look back and you think of the controversial stuff he said, I don't think much of it was said in the time that I was on the program, and so it would be in, in, incorrect and uh, improper for me to comment on that. Uh, John, when you look back then, no regrets, right? It's been, it sounds like it's been um, a lot of work, but a lot of, a lot of memories too. Ben, the toughest thing in the 46 years I've been in the industry was to write this book. Everything else was fun. I joke that, you know, I have played in the sandbox of sports television for five decades. I was blessed to work and be part of things that I had a passion for. Did I make a lot of mistakes? I made a ton of mistakes. I'd like to think I learned from those mistakes. I think, you know what, I'd like to think I evolved with those mistakes. Uh, and that, to me, is part of the story that uh, that I've tried to tell. And thus the name of the book. John Shannon, uh, congratulations once again. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Oh, thank you for the time, Ben. Have a great day. Speaking of things that still work so you keep on using them, inflation was once again the attack line from the official opposition today. Conservative leader Pierre Polyev in the House of Commons quoting former Bank of Canada Governor Mark Carney's assertion that the sources of Canadian inflation are primarily domestic. The Prime Minister accusing the Conservatives of not taking inflation seriously because they oppose liberal initiatives. Most of it is now domestically generated inflation. And this Prime Minister is responsible for that inflation. Why would he take responsibility? Why isn't the Conservative Party that says it cares about affordability stepping up to support on rental and dental? Why won't they support Canadians? Again, speaking of things that work, so you just keep on using them. Two familiar lines there. The Conservatives blaming Trudeau for inflation, which is a global problem, and uh, Trudeau saying the Conservatives don't support uh, a government's agenda, which is understandable. Meanwhile, not far away at the Bank of Canada, we're expecting another interest rate hike tomorrow to combat high inflation. That's been the remedy. 
keep raising interest rates. We've had it happen five times since the beginning of the year. We're expecting a sixth tomorrow. It could jump to as high as 4%. It's at 3.25. Now, don't forget, it started the year at 0.25%. At the beginning of 2022, it was 0.25%. Last week, we spoke with economist Peter Stanford, who believes the Bank of Canada is going too far too fast and that it's doing more damage than good for many Canadians. It's like we're driving into fog, Ben. And when you drive in a fog, you should slow down, honestly. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen globally. We should wait and see what's happening to the Canadian economy. It's quite possible we are already in recession. Uh, recession is defined as two quarters of shrinking real GDP in a row. And the, the quarter that just finished, the July to September quarter, we don't have the data on yet. We won't get it for a few more weeks. But there's a good chance it was negative, in which case the recession uh, has likely already started. And the idea of actually increasing interest rates further while we're already going into a recession, uh, frankly, would be a disaster. Then it's not going to be a short recession. It's going to be a long, painful thing. It's going to be like the recession of 81, 82 or 1990 to 1992 all over again. That's economist Peter Stanford there. You can find all our interviews, if you've ever missed one, on the A Little More Conversation podcast, anywhere you find your favorite podcast. But to move from that, uh, while a quick move to raise interest rates is meant to help tame inflation, it's also putting a strain on the many Canadians uh, who have debt, either through rising costs to borrow or to service what they already owe. Uh, and we have a lot of debt, it turns out, in this country. Uh, so those pri rising prices, debt and looming looming recession added all to the mix is kind of a recipe for bad news. And joining me with more on that is Doug Hoyes. He's co-founder of debt counseling firm Hoyes Mike Michaelis in Toronto. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Happy to be here, Ben. So uh, just to paint a picture for us, because we know interest rates are up, we know inflation is up, we're talking about a looming recession, it's all kind of bad news on the economic front. From from where you, where you sit, uh, just how bad is it? Well, it's pretty bad, and obviously it affects everyone differently. If your name is Warren Buffett, this is probably not having a big impact on you because you probably don't have any debt, you got money in the bank, interest rates are going up, you're going to earn higher interest on your deposits, it's all good. If you are uh, somebody who has no debt at all, then again, the interest rate isn't really a big thing for you. But if you are one of the majority of Canadians who does have debt, then this is becoming a, a preoccupation. So just l l let's talk about some numbers here. So let's take somebody who has a half million dollar mortgage, which used, used to be a massive number, but now across Canada, that's that's not so big a number anymore. If at the start of the year, you had a five-year fixed rate mortgage with a 25-year amortization, and you know maybe you were able to get it for 2%, then your mortgage payment was a little over 2100 bucks a month. By the end of this month, and in fact, by tomorrow, we expect that five-year fixed mortgage rates could be starting with the number six. We could be in the, up into the 6% range. Well, maybe by the end of the month, depending on how long it takes to kind of filter its way through. That would mean your monthly mortgage payment on that same five-year or 25-year amortization, $500,000 mortgage is around $3,200 a month. So your mortgage payment, and I understand five-year mortgages don't change every month, but I'm just comparing two different numbers. If you'd gotten the mortgage in January versus getting the mortgage, let's say November 1st, your payments per month have gone up by over $1,000. Yeah. Money and, right, out, right out of the economy, right? I mean, yeah. right out of, I mean, it's just to service your debt. 
Right. And that's just the, the one debt on your mortgage. And $1,000, when you started off with a mortgage of $2,100, okay, that's like a 50% increase in your mortgage payment. How many people have had a 50% increase in their paycheck this year? Uh, not many, I'm guessing. And that's where it's it's squeezing people. And I'm, I'm giving you one example. I mean, you could take the example of someone who has a HELOC, a, a line of credit. Again, if you started the year with a 2% interest rate and it's going up to 6%, then on a $100,000 HELOC, you've gone from 167 bucks a month to 500 bucks a month if it's an interest-only deal. That's a 200% increase in your, your payment. So again, it's, that's what's squeezing people. It's a big chunk out of their budget. And of course, we haven't even talked about inflation. Just on the debt side, though, it's, it's a huge number. Yeah, what are you seeing firsthand? Are you seeing a reflection of that in the work that you do? We are, but it's very interesting in that there is a big time lag. So as you said, Hoys Michaelis and Associates, we, you know, we do debt counseling. We're licensed insolvency trustees. So when people have more debt than they can handle, they come in and see us. We do a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy for them if that's what's appropriate. And you would think, oh my goodness, with interest rates so high, inflation so high, we are probably as busy as we've ever been. And amazingly enough, no, we aren't actually. The number of insolvencies being in file, personal insolvencies being in filed in Canada today is about as low as it's been in 20 years. I mean, it's gone up a little bit over the last three or four months, but it's it's very low. I mean, that makes no sense. Why is that? Well, it's because during the pandemic, we were able to increase our savings and pay down our debt because a lot of us were stuck at home. We couldn't go on vacation. We didn't have to pay for daycare because our kids were home. We weren't putting gas in the car, weren't going to a restaurant or getting our hair cut. So we were actually able to pay down our credit cards and our savings went up. Now, of course, we've been eating into that over the last you know, six, seven, 10 months, but we still have a bit of cushion left. When interest rates go up, it doesn't immediately cause a catastrophe. It's a slow motion train wreck, not an immediate one. So I think if you were to survey all your listeners, they would say, well, yeah, my variable rate mortgage went up, but you know what? I can take a couple of bucks from my other line of credit. I can maybe get a cash advance on my credit card. Maybe I can work a couple extra hours overtime. You can bob and weave for a few months. And that's what we're doing now. We're in the calm before the storm, I think, right now. And I think the real big problems are going to become much more apparent probably in the spring and the summer of next year when we've depleted all our savings. Interest rates are even higher. Inflation may still be high as well. And we just can't make a go of it. So we're we're in the early stages of this, I think. Yeah, we're reaching that point where the time we had to save during uh, the height of the pandemic is now slowly being caught up to by the amount of time we've had to deal with, you know, record high and or at least the highest inflation we've seen in 40 years and rising inflation rates. So it's you're right. There's still some time there. But um, so so what would be the I mean, what would be the right move then if you are someone in a situation where you're now taking on debt or depleting what you'd saved up? I mean, maybe you went into this whole environment better place than you were four years ago. But as the money starts to dwindle, there are obviously some things that you need to do before you reach that crisis point that you think may happen uh, in about six to eight months time. Yeah. And I think the number one thing you want to be doing is looking ahead. So, okay, what happens if my payments continue to go up? What can I possibly do? 
a lot of people are now picking up side hustles. Well, maybe I'll drive for uh, Uber on the weekends or something or pick up a retail job to go with my other job. But you can only work so many hours a week. So that's not a, a long-term solution. Mathematically, the only other thing you can do is attempt to reduce your expenses. So, okay, I'm only going out to a restaurant once a month, not once a week, that sort of thing. But even that, cutting expenses probably isn't enough to make a significant dent in your budget. Again, if your mortgage payments are up by $1,000 a month, skipping a restaurant meal isn't going to solve the problem. So I think we're going to see a lot of people taking more drastic action. You know, maybe I got to go move back in with my parents. Maybe, you know, I, I don't need to have two cars. I only need to have one. Are there any assets I can sell? We aren't quite at that stage yet, but I think that's the discussion a lot of people will be having with themselves over the next few months. If you're the Bank of Canada, you must be looking at this thinking that's what we want to avoid. I mean, it's one thing to try to raise interest rates to tame inflation. Everyone understands how that works or and just how successful it's been is another another matter for debate these days. But obviously, the one thing you don't want to do is start to push a whole bunch of Canadians into very dire financial shape where all of a sudden they're taking on more debt that they can afford to pay back and the cost of servicing in that debt is going up. It's not clear to me what the Bank of Canada wants to do. I mean, I, I don't quite understand what their strategy is here. Yeah, I get what you're saying, that inflation is high, and we can debate why inflation is high. But okay, inflation is high. I understand if you increase interest rates, that curtails demand. We don't buy as much stuff, and therefore prices come back down. Well, I guess the time to be raising interest rates was six months to a year ago then, not not now. So they're a little bit behind the eight ball. I remember, I guess it was a year, year and a half ago when the governor of the Bank of Canada said, well, this is transitory, meaning Indeed. short. Well, okay, I guess if transitory is four or five years, he was right. If he was talking more short term, not so much. I think it's clear that what he said was a mistake. My assumption would be, well, I made a big mistake last time. I'm not making the same mistake twice. So yes, I'm going to keep raising interest rates because what I'm going to do is bring inflation down. And if that means we have to have a recession, if we have to have a real estate crash, if we have to have a lot of people out of work, well, I guess that's what we got to do because my number one thing is inflation. And if that's what he's thinking, then I guess we do see a 50 or 75 basis point to raise tomorrow. And we probably see another one before the end of the year. And almost for sure, we are in a recession in 2023. I think we're in one now, but we're for sure in one next year. And that will, I guess, tame inflation, but it will cause a whole lot of hardship for a whole lot of people. That seems to be where the train is headed. When we look at what you can do, I mean, obviously, one of the things you don't want to be doing now is taking on debt to pay off debt because your debt's just getting more expensive to borrow, to pay back debt that might be, I mean, it's hard to say, but it feels like further debt's just the completely wrong idea. And I say this because I was looking at some stats in a Toronto Star article that you were interviewed for as well, where, you know, credit limits on credit cards are up. It looks like people are are relying on old forms of sort of borrowing to pay back, which which are a real deep hole to get into. Borrowing to get out of debt, you're right, makes no sense unless it's a very short, short term thing. If I got laid off from my job, but I know I'm going back to work next week, okay, then I guess it's not that big a deal to be 
putting some stuff on my credit card. But I think we're into this for much longer than a week or two. I think we're looking at six months, a year, year and a half, whatever. So I, I totally agree with you. Now is not the time to be incurring more debt, particularly if interest rates are going up because the debt you incur not only is a bigger number, but you're going to be having higher carrying costs. And it's the carrying costs that kill you. The reason everybody's been able to get a million dollar mortgage is because, well, if interest rates are only 2%, it doesn't cost me that much. But as interest rates go up, everything costs more, credit cards, you know, loans, whatever. So if you want to focus on one thing, then yes, focusing on reducing debt now is the number one thing to focus on. Now, obviously, I'm a debt guy, so I'm a little bit biased on that. But the, the first thing you can look at is, do I have different kinds of debt? Can I shift some of my high interest rate debt to lower interest rate debt? So if I have a credit card and a line of credit at the bank, well, can I take some money from the line of credit to pay down the credit card? Because then I'm shifting from a, a higher interest rate to a lower interest rate. You're not going to be able to do that forever. And I suspect if the situation gets worse, the banks are going to say, hey, we're going to start capping your lines of credit. We're not going to let you have any more than than what you need to, to have. But in the, in the short term, whatever you can do to reduce debt, by all means, do it. And certainly if you've got super high interest rate debt, like payday loans, for example, or finance company loans where the interest rates can be 45%, those are the ones you want to absolutely focus on paying down because costs are just just far too high. And I guess even a small step makes a difference, right? Even a certain amount of money is better than, I mean, you can't solve all your problems at once, but even a small step must work. Yeah. And you don't have to take our word for it. Do the math. So say to yourself, okay, well, if I was able to pay an extra hundred bucks down on my credit card, how much could I save? So there's all sorts of online calculators out there. If my credit card balance stays at this much, what's the interest rate or what's the interest I pay? If I was able to pay down an extra hundred bucks, how much does that save me over the course of a year? And I mean, I guess the math is pretty simple. If your credit card is at a 20% interest rate and you can pay it down by a hundred bucks over the course of a year, you're saving yourself 20 bucks. That's 20%. So yeah, crunch the numbers and uh, and see what you can do. Yeah, I was looking at Canadians owe $1.81 in debt for every dollar of income they make, which is uh, which is a sobering number heading into what we think is some tough times. Uh, Doug Hoyes, thank you so much for your time and your advice tonight. It's been great to talk to you, Ben. 